short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back, everybody, to the Cameron Ray Cold War podcast, <laughs> episode two. Two, I like that. Deuce. Have you learned any, um, where to go, shit? Okay, uh, did you learn a Russian word or anything to get ready? I have learned. Oh, my God, I did, and I totally forgot to use it. Yeah, me too. I was going to call you <laughs> Comrade Car- Comrade Cameron. Uh, and ah. How about Priviet? Priviet. Priviet. Privyet, which is yeah. uh, informal, hello, for someone you know well. And after what happened between you and me in Vegas, I think I can say we know each other pretty well. Privyet Tavarish. Privyet Tavarish. I think that's what I, like I was going to say. Okay. Which is comrade, I think. Um, uh, yeah. Hi, Ray. How have you been, Ray? Since the last episode? Yeah. Pretty much the same. Pretty yeah. much the same. Have not moved from your chair since the last episode, man. <laughs> no. Should have no. stood up, do some stretches. I mean, well, the pants are off. But other than that, I'm, I'm boom. Yeah. I'm ready to go. Yeah. <sighs> Just drop a little tablet and you're ready to go anytime. <laughs> so we're going to start the mini biographies on this episode. And we're going to start with Churchill. Not for any other reason other than that's where we're going to start. And yeah, you got to start somewhere. I do want to start this by like doing a bit of a disclaimer. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I know, I already know that I'm going to upset a lot of people with this episode. Right. Um, and my intention is not to upset you. This And this no. isn't intended to be a beat up on Churchill. Although no. I am going to be saying a lot of things that may be shocking about Churchill in this episode, it's not intended to make him out to be a purely evil guy, as Ray said in the last episode. There's no such thing as evil people and good people. There are people with motivations and they have flaws and they do good things, yeah. they do bad things, particularly these these huge characters in history. Right. Um, the, the, the reason... I want to dig down into some of the less attractive aspects of Churchill, his character and his life and his career, is because he has been deified, mm-hmm. particularly Absolutely. in the West um, since the end of World War Two, and you know he's been whitewashed. His 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 career has been whitewashed. He's been glorified, and I don't think that's. A, fair, B, appropriate, and C, a good idea. I think it's very dangerous for us to whitewash and glorify people, particularly politicians, particularly military leaders, um, right. when particularly when their story isn't all, uh, you know, sunshine and flowers, because it, it, mm-hmm. it, it sort of, you know, it's this whole thing of glorifying 
our, our own uh, militaristic natures that we need to be very, very careful of. Yeah, and I just want to add that as far as we all know today, Churchill was the happy warrior. Well, within that is the word war, and there's always bad things that's going on in war, and you really don't want to focus on that because it messes with your idea of someone who's willing to stand up against you know, overwhelming odds, which is what he's known for, but he had his less nice side, and he was a product of his environment. So as Cam goes through this, just keep in mind that he was human, he had his flaws, he had his prejudices and and that kind of stuff. And when I, when I was looking at your notes, because I've done a, a mini bio on Churchill, when I was looking at your at your notes, the book that I was using, which was very credible, I think I was using a total of three books, did not cover a lot of this. So again, this is just something, th- this just helps fill out the man. This who is who Churchill was as he's going up against Hitler and then later going up against Stalin. Yeah, one of the interesting things about doing this series at this time is that in the last 10, 15 years, a mm-hmm. lot of new information has come out uh, about Churchill. The, the, enough time has passed now where there are right. revisionist histories or maybe they're, they're counter-revisionist histories because I think the whitewashing yeah. of him was the revisionist history. Exactly. Counter-revisionist histories that exploring his dark side. But also we, we know a lot more about the Soviet side of the Cold War now, post-Perestroika um, and Glashnost, um, you know, the end of the Cold War. There's a lot of information in the last 25 years that has now emerged out of the Soviet archives and been translated into English. And so we know a lot more about these two uh, parties in particular uh, than we ever have before. A lot of American stuff we still don't know. I think it's still... Buried under, yeah. you know, secrecy acts and freedom of information. Don't even know who killed Kennedy, although I suspect right. it was um, LBJ. But that's another story. We'll get to that. Um, another show. Not himself, obviously. No, right, right, right. He no, wasn't, no. you know, in the book depository. But we'll get right. to that. All right. So back to Churchill. Now, as I said, it's it's this isn't intended to paint a completely negative view of the man. I want to be fair. I want to be reasonable. As we go through this, we will explore his good side as well as his bad side. But because I suspect most of you have a uh, majority, uh, your view of him is strongly that he was a a hero and a noble warrior uh, uh, and a good guy, I want to break that apart a little bit. Um, contrarily, when we get to Stalin, because you you probably already think of him as being the personification of evil, we're, we're probably going to do the opposite job there and try and explore, yeah. uh, not that we're going to you know uh, uh, try and uh, uh, justify or apologise, we're going to explain yeah. who explain. he was yeah. and where he was coming from. And as Ray said in the last episode, what was might have been, we think, going through his head, what he was trying to accomplish. So we, we talk, we're not going to try and provide a completely balanced account in this, these these mini biographies. We're right. going to try and balance up the opinion we suspect the vast majority of you currently have. We don't have time to do How many episodes have you done on Churchill on your other series I now? I did 25. If you want a more in-depth uh, uh, biography <laughs> on Churchill, go listen to Ray's World War II series. <laughs> So, um, but you know, we just like when we did Caesar and Alexander, our job was to peel away the mythology that is that, that is built up over time around these guys, and to try and you know figure out well where do the facts lay, and then do our own 
analysis of those facts as as we can discover them based on the information that is available and try and work out for ourselves as Caesar you know, a good guy or a bad guy. Uh, overall, you know, his 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 contribution to ancient Rome was he was he trying to do good things or bad things for Rome or for the Gauls or whoever. Same with Alexander, etc. And Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, born in eighteen seventy four into the family of the Duke of Marlborough. Nice. A branch of the Spencer family, and yes, that's the same family that Princess Diana came from. Nice. Do you know what their relationship was, Ray? No, please tell me. They were fifth cousins two times removed. Wow. Princess Diana. So Churchill was a blue blood aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Now that's going to be important as, as we go along, particularly you know when we look at the big three. He was a blue blood. Uh, Roosevelt was a blue blood aristocrat. Um, Stalin. Oh, I know this one. He was a red blood. <laughs> no, he was not a blue blood. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. Stalin came from very humble yep. beginnings, and and you know the the sort of backgrounds, their cultures they grew up in, the expectations, their view oh, of yeah. each other and of themselves, it all plays into the the dynamic that that's going down once we get to Yalta. And let me let me just jump in real quick, and because uh, this ca- I came across this uh, I guess some emails when I was doing the Churchill uh, bio. Why isn't um, he the Duke? Why isn't Winston the Duke of Marlborough? That's because his father was the third son of the seventh Duke. Third sons don't get titles. So Winston's uncle was the eighth Duke, and his son Winston's cousin was the ninth Duke. So he's born into that, but he's not along the the correct line, the correct branch of the family tree to, to get that. So he's a private citizen, but he's going to do. But he's certainly of that world. He thinks like they do, and he's going to do everything he can to perpetuate that society. Because why wouldn't you? You're you know you're the cream of the the cream of the crops. Why wouldn't you want to keep that going? Exactly. His father was Lord Randolph Lord. Churchill. Yes. Lord nice. Randy, as he was known to his friends. <laughs> The Randy Lord. <laughs> oh, he, he was Randy, all right. Yeah. He was Randy. He got syphilis, but go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah. He was a politician. He served as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is basically the, the treasurer, the federal mm-hmm. treasurer, as I understand it, in the United yep. Kingdom. Um, Winnie's mother was Jenny Jerome, an American socialite. Her father, I think, owned... Uh, uh, railroads and, you know, played a role in Wall Street. I think he was a banker as well. So both came from big money. It was a bit like um, Downton Abbey. Exactly. Uh, you know, rich or sort of landed gentry British mm-hmm. uh, guy marries an American woman with money. <clears throat> I just have to say that Jenny Jerome was hot, hot stuff and she was a player. If you know what I mean. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I haven't seen long any list of lovers. Hello, hello. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> now um, we'll get into his career a bit more, but as soon as he could, pretty much, uh, young Winston ran off to fight in uh, British military conflicts all over the world. Uh, he, you know, went to India. He fought in the Anglo-Sudan War. Fought in the Second Boer War. He went to Cuba. He's remembered fondly for his leadership during the London bombings and for helping defeat Hitler. But 
You know, as I said before, it's a classic case of a reputation being whitewashed by history, and it's no accident for Churchill himself said, <laughs> history will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. Hell yeah. And Hell yeah. write it he did. He was, mm-hmm. I, I was talking to Ray yesterday, and I said, Churchill was basically the Cicero of the 20th century. This motherfucker could write, he could yep. speak, uh, he could, you know, manipulate. He wasn't very well liked. Um, yeah. You know, he ended up, and, you know, we know people who listen to our old Caesar show know Cicero was uh, the consul of Rome for a term. Um, if, if Cicero had gone and fought the Parthians and, and had a win, then yeah. he would be pretty much the exact counterpart uh, and lived, lived yeah. longer than he did. Uh, he would have been right. the counterpart of Churchill in many ways. I suspect Churchill modelled himself uh, among many people. I know he had a statue of Napoleon on his mm-hmm. desk. I suspect yeah. he was also a big admirer of our old mate, Dickero. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he, when he was younger and fit and reckless, like we all are when we're young, he wouldn't hesitate to jump in the shadow, the, the saddle, excuse me, and charge into war. But he, even then, he had a purpose. His goal was to write about himself get famous and leap from the saddle or the military branch right into politics to join his uh, dad to help fight his dad's enemy. So Churchill had a plan, uh, but like you said, he's always promoting himself. He's always writing about himself. He knew exactly what he was going to do, and he just had to risk himself at times in order to accomplish all of that. So he knew exactly what he wanted. It's essentially exactly what we do with these podcasts, Yes, oh, yeah. look, you know, we're we're reporting on what happened, but it's all about risking ourselves by sitting in these <laughs> chairs for endless hours <laughs> and right. risking our wives having us killed because we don't spend any time with them in order yeah. for us to become political leaders of our respective countries. He, That's what it's all about. He's not joking, people. He's not joking. It's only a matter of time before we get the call, you know. Yeah, we're either, we're either going to be made king or we're going to get assassinated, one or the other. Now, George W. Bush had a bust of Churchill near his desk in the White House in an attempt, mm-hmm. we would imagine, to associate himself with the leader's uh, stand against fascism during Bush's uh, so-called war on terrorism. However, when uh, Barack Obama became president, he had mm-hmm. the bust returned to Britain. Oh, that was nice of him. <laughs> No, it wasn't a nice gesture. He was like, get that, get that fucking get that. thing out of my fucking sight. Um, what? I'm trying, I should have done that about it. Uh, get that thing uh, out of my fucking sight. I can't do an Obama impersonation. That well, was not bad. No. Here's why, and we'll go into this in a bit more detail shortly, but Obama's Kenyan grandfather, Hussein Onyango Obama, was mm-hmm. imprisoned without trial for two years and tortured on Churchill's watch. <laughs> For resisting the British Empire. So, um, yeah, not a lot of love between President Obama and Churchill. Yeah. But we'll get to that later. Now, as I said, as soon as he could, young Churchill charged off to take part in what he referred to in his writings as a lot of jolly little wars against barbarous peoples. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. And again, he had a plan. And I think the type of man he was, he didn't actually think he would die, you know, oh, that's going to happen to someone else. I'm just going to go in here. I'm going to write about it. Because even at this age, he has discovered that he is a very talented writer. He's 
already made, um, he's already sold the rights to various magazines and things like that. And he's just going to keep doing that over the years and years. But he has a plan and he's going to do that. But first, he's got to mix it up and he's got to. Um, He's got to get out there and, and you know put his life on the line. Um, I, but I think one of the things about Churchill that is so fascinating is that, like we've already said, he is a blue blood. He has one foot firmly entrenched in the 1800s. The other one was uh, in the 1900s. He was a very far-seen kind of person. When he grows up, he's going to see how things can be better. He, he was obsessed with toys and technology, mostly when it came to war. But he is a complex man who is a man of two worlds. But for right now, he is doing everything he can to promote himself because he sees himself at 10 Downing Street sometime in his future. Um, he, he first off, he first went off to Cuba, but I'm going to cover that later because I want to go into detail about that. But in mm -hmm. terms of, and that was really as a war correspondent, but in 1897, age 23, he went to the Swat Valley, which is mm -hmm. now part of Pakistan. Back then it would have been part of the British Indian Empire to fight an insurrection by local Indian tribes. Obviously, India was part of the great British Empire. Uh, I mean, great right. in terms of huge, not in terms of, wow, that's right. awesome. It was um, the crown jewel of the British Empire. Mm. He wrote that these um, you know, Indian tribes that were obviously trying to, to kick off the shackles of uh, British occupation were mm -hmm. merely deranged jihadists um, whose violence were explained by a strong Aboriginal propensity to kill. Mm. He uh, also wrote <clears throat> about his own time there, We proceeded systematically, village by village, and we destroyed the houses, filled up the wells, blew down the towers, cut down the shady trees, burned the crops, and broke the reservoirs in punitive devastation. Of course, we know what the word for that is, Ray. Yeah, terrorism? Vastatio, right? <laughs> it was Vastatio. I forgot about that. Yeah. Vastatio on their asses. Yeah, yes. yeah. He even yes. called it devastation. Vastatio, that's what uh, Caesar would have yeah. called it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, he was more than happy to go in there and absolutely crush the Indian subjects for resisting the empire. Now, I want you to remember this. When we get to the section on Stalin and Stalin killing his own people and his brutality amongst anyone who didn't agree with his vision of the Soviet empire. I want you to remember that, I mean, albeit Churchill's a young man at this point, as Stalin was during the, the revolution. But mm -hmm. uh, this, this, you know, Churchill was more than happy to get in there and kill and destroy uh, the, the, the villages of anyone who resisted the British right. Empire. Anyone who resisted the white man rule, he was more than happy to go in and crush. Um, uh, he then sped off, I think, the next year to help reconquer the Sudan from mm -hmm. Islamic freedom fighters, again, trying to throw off the shackles of the British Empire. Um, in his writings about that, he bragged that he personally shot at least three savages, mm. as he called yep. them. Right. Um, in 1902, a couple of years later, he was fighting in the Second Boer War in South Africa against the Dutch and the local black population. He later wrote about his irritation that Kaffirs should be allowed to fire on white men. Yeah, oh, I think it's, it's very irritating that <laughs> Kaffirs should be allowed to fire on the white men. 
Now, for those of you too young to know what a Kaffir is, Kaffir was a term used to describe the blacks in Africa, similar to nigger in the United States. Uh, Mm -hmm. Did you know, Ray, that the word Kaffir is actually derived from the Arabic term Kaffir, meaning disbeliever, Ah, and originally had the meaning of one without religion. And then Portuguese explorers adopted the term to refer to black non-Muslim peoples when they became Mm. involved in the Arab slave trade along the Swahili coast, and then it just gradually extended to all black people by the the Dutch and the British, obviously, in South Africa. Um, Today, of course, it's considered uh an ethnic slur. So don't go around using that, kids. Yeah, no, no, Don't go up to your black friends and call them a kaffir. Might might (laughs) get you hurt. Yeah. No, yes. So one, I did not know that. Two, I just have to say, I always enjoy your tangents. <laughs> yeah, well, there'll be a lot of them. Um, <laughs> but it's important to understand these things. Um, yeah. Churchill later boasted of his experiences killing everybody in South Africa. It was great fun galloping about. Um, and then, you know, he goes on during the... I'm not, I'm not going to go into too much detail again. Going listen to Ray's 25-episode... <laughs> biography if you want the early life of Churchill in detail mm-hmm. but during the first world war he served as the first lord of the admiralty and was largely responsible and I know you're going to want to throw your bit in here for the disastrous landing at Gallipoli in World War One. one reason why he isn't remembered very fondly by Australians and New Zealanders because it was mostly Aussies and Kiwis that were thrown onto the beaches at Gallipoli and just mowed down in their thousands now, right. I know he wasn't solely responsible for it, Ray. You want to quickly mm-hmm. provide some perspective there just so the people listening who are Churchill fans don't lose their shit? <laughs> right, it's probably too late for that now. No, just that he was, you know, he was certainly a, a member of the cabinet, and with his personality, he just kind of takes things over, especially as this is a military operation. But he certainly didn't act alone, and during the numerous meetings they had about this as they're altering things and changing things and trying to improve it, uh, no one ever stops him. But once it is a go, uh, Kitchener is going to do his part to has sabotage it, and when it is actually put into and put into force uh the execution was so pathetic between the army and the navy and the communication and weaponry and all this stuff it was an absolute disaster but by then it had his name on it and practically no one else's so he does get blamed was he a part of it absolutely um but it wasn't his alone but when you have that kind of strong personality and you take things over as he constantly did, if it was something he was excited about, which is another thing that makes him a fascinating person, you get the glory and the blame if it goes wrong. And that obviously went very wrong. Well, the Brits at the time held him responsible for it uh, enough that he was sacked from the war cabinet uh, within a month of the Mm -hmm. landing of Gallipoli. So you look, you know, there are lots of, different views on that even to this day whether or not it was a good plan or a bad plan or the only plan whether or not it was a problem of planning or execution either way it went horribly wrong and he got the blame for it at the time right um he returned to go he i think he went out and fought on the western front or something there for a while he he's, he's sort of um in the weeds for a while. He returns to the government under Lloyd George's Minister for Munitions. He becomes Secretary of State for the War, for Air, and Secretary of State for the Colonies or Colonial Secretary. Um, And then this is interesting. A lot of people probably don't know this, but in, in 1917, 
when the Russian Revolution happened and the Bolsheviks took control uh, eventually after the October Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, in the next year, in 1918, Churchill sent British troops into Russia to try and crush the Bolshevik Revolution. The, the Americans also sent yeah. troops in that year again to try and crush the Bolshevik Revolution. There were other justifications for it. Um, and we'll, when we get to, uh, I think, the, the, a later episode, we'll, we'll explain what happened in a lot more detail. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is kind of important to understand, again, when we get to the relationship late, much, much later on, decades later, between Stalin and Churchill, oh, they, yeah. they both know that Churchill sent troops in to Russia, invaded Russia in yeah. 1918 to try and crush the Bolshevik Revolution. Churchill was on record at the time saying he wanted to strangle Bolshevism in its cradle. <laughs> so well before Stalin's purges or, you know, the deaths of people under Stalinist Russia from famine or, or, or the, the Eastern Bloc or any of that, from the mm-hmm. very birth of the Bolshevik Revolution, Churchill hated it and wanted to crush it and destroy it. Yeah. And again, later on, we will sort of try and explain why and break that down. Um, in 1919, Churchill, uh, as Secretary of State for Air and Water, um, sent tanks and an estimated 10,000 troops to Glasgow during a period of civil unrest. Uh, there were yeah. lots of strikes uh, going on. Now, as a, I had a Scottish father, again, another reason I don't like Churchill. He, mm-hmm. sent, he sent in troops to crush strikers. Um, he, apparently, he had a fear that there was going to be a Bolshevik revolt as a result of it. Right. Uh, yeah. you know, and again, as we'll explore as we go forwards with the series, a lot of leaders in the West were very concerned in the early part of the 20th century that mm-hmm. uh, there was a general civil unrest. People were very unhappy with capitalism. They were unhappy about World War One. They were unhappy about their lot, what they were getting, the the, the differential between the rich and the poor. And yeah. uh, there was a huge concern that socialism would spread around the world, which is one of right. the reasons why the wealthy elite in the West threw everything they had to crush socialism wherever it raised its head because if it was successful in one country it might come to their country and then they would lose their shit, literally lose their shit. (laughs) Um, So he was was more than happy to send in troops to crush uh, 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 striking workers. Um, Also, as colonial secretary in the 1920s, he he sent the notorious black and tan thugs to Ireland um, Mm -hmm. to crush the, the Catholics who were fighting for their independence Again, mm. there's a theme emerging here. Uh, Churchill, from very early on in his political career, uh, and before that, even in his uh, uh, military career, was more than happy to go and kill and crush anyone who was fighting for independence from the British Empire. Yeah, it was literally the attitude, my way or the highway or the highway to hell. I don't know exactly, but uh, yeah, no, pretty much anything to perpetuate what they had. Don't change it. Don't alter it. We like it. And I'm always amazed that no one ever has enough power. No one ever has enough money. They always want more. But at the very least, they want to do whatever they have to do to perpetuate the system that benefits them so well. And Churchill was equally guilty of, of that, just like so many other people had done and to this day still do. 
Now, around about the same time after the end of World War One, he's pretty much the man who invented Iraq. Um, you know, basically, mm-hmm. n- notoriously took a pencil out, put it on a map, and drew a border, <laughs> and said, "There you go." There you go. Congratulations. Um, you know, and and sort of created the situation where. Uh, you know, locking these th- conflicting people behind arbitrary borders in the Middle East. And, you know, they've right. sort of been bleeding ever since. Um, there was an uprising in 1920 in Iraq where, believe it or not, the Sunni and the Shia united oh God. against the British. Yeah. Um, it was put down, but the British, again, under Churchill's commander's uh, Secretary of State for Air and War and uh, Colonial Secretary, sent in 100,000 British and Indian troops. Mm. Thousands of Arabs were killed. Then Churchill approved bombing campaigns against them. Uh, the RAF flew 4,008 hours, dropped 97 tons of bombs and fired 183, 861 rounds on these Iraqis, again fighting for their freedom from the British Empire. They were fighting for self-determination and they were crushed by Winston Churchill. And, and just to give some backstory, um, Churchill, who was the uh, the foreign secretary, I think at that time, is literally trying to create a series of uh, pro-British client monarchies in the area who will be beholden to British and also trying to do the same thing with Turkey, keep it strong, because it is all supposed to be a check against possible Russian expansion to the south. So again, he's taking the builder blocks that he has, and unfortunately, he's not examining them very closely, and he's just ramming, the, ramming them together to try to make a wall to make sure Russia doesn't um, come any further south because first you have to stop the flow of something then you can go on the offensive and attack it and right now he's just trying to check it before it can go anywhere and like you said people's lives are if they're miserable they might just go well socialism I might lose some freedom but at least I can have a job and I'll be fed so it's not that bad so they're literally trying to check this before it can spread any further than it already has. And you're absolutely right. It's the beginning of this point that we see the change of the British Empire, and it's something that the Americans learnt uh, from them as well, from colonialism to imperialism. The yeah. difference, and, I, and I've, I'll drill down on this later on, but the difference being with colonialism, you just say, well, you just raise the, you go into India, you re- raise the British flag, you send in mm-hmm. the British troops, and you say, this is now ours, shut the fuck up, or we'll kill you, um, right. give us all your money. Um, imperialism is where he, you send in your troops and then you put one of their own people right. Right. in control. You let them have their own flag. You let them have yeah. – and this is you – know, we know this is what Alexander tried to do oh, yeah. uh, throughout Persia in the, the 4th century BCE. You put one of their people in control. You go, look, you know, nothing's changed. Uh, yeah. It's one of you. He's it's one of you. Flag. But yeah. just give us all your fucking money. Um, right. and, and Can't Mr. trade with anybody but us. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Mr. Prime Minister, if you don't do what we want, we'll kill you and put someone else in who does what we yeah. tell them to do. Yeah. So there was this move here, and Churchill was a large part of that. He was trying to get smarter about how they ran, continued to, to run the British Empire as a trading block, and that's very, very important. A lot of our shows are going to be talking about the importance of economic trading blocks to the formation of the Cold War, but mm-hmm. um, without it looking like 
It's colonialism. Right. How yeah. do you how do you make yeah. it look something that's more palatable? So we cuz cuz they just couldn't keep affording to go in and and fighting these uh civil unrest right. that were cropping up more and more. Well, then it's not financially it uh financially worth it if you have to keep going in and fighting. No, you need them placated, happy and buying your stuff or making your goods or letting you take their natural resources. Yeah, if you have to fight too much, that defeats the entire purpose of trying to make money there. Exactly. Um, now, around right about the same times, the Kurds. Uh, now, we know that the Kurds have been oppressed by lots of people in the 20th right. century. You know, uh, yeah. Saddam Hussein gets a lot of uh, criticism justified for uh, mm-hmm. killing the Kurds. Um, well, the Kurds rebelled against British rule. Um, Churchill at the time, his view on it was, I am strongly in favour of using poisoned gas against uncivilised tribes. It would spread yeah. a lively terror. Wow. Now, they didn't actually use the gas. The government went, shut the fuck up, Winston. What? What? <laughs> where? Who let him in? Get out of here, Winnie. Uh, now, his apologists say, well, he was really referring to tear gas here, not mustard gas. Um, right. So it's not really going to kill them. It's just going to, you know, make them very uncomfortable. Better than killing them. Uh, if yeah. it, you know, okay. The well, point, point- I would just like... Go. Just real quick, the tear gas is the gateway drug to <laughs> yes. uh, to the other types of gas. That's all I want to say. The point is that the Kurds, again, rebelling, wanted self-determination, and, and Churchill was all for crushing them with poison gas. He does later on authorise uh, real lethal poison gas, so don't be worried mm-hmm. about that. He, he was the gateway drug. He started going, right. hmm, gas, hey, hmm. It worked, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read about this time also. Uh, he played a significant role in creating Israel. Um, you know, the Balfour Declaration was out. His role mm-hmm. as colonial secretary was to go over and start to organise how that was actually going to play out. Um, but, you know, he seems to have privately held racist contempt for both the Zionists and the Arabs. An Quite, equal opportunity, yeah. Later on, he uh, said the Palestinians um, were barbaric hordes who ate little but camel dung. Ouch. While he was appalled Ugh. that the Zionists took it for granted that the local population will be cleared out to suit their convenience. Wow. Now, that's an interesting quote from Churchill in the 1920s for those, our, um, particularly our uh, Jewish and Israeli listeners, uh, Barry Morris, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of you, who like to argue with me that uh, there was nothing, in, no one was living in Palestine when the Zionists turned up. And, and uh, even if there was anyone, then it was never their intention, the Zionist intention to kick them out. They just sold it to them legally. It was all good. Oh, okay. It was all friendly. Here's, here's, here's Churchill in the 90s, 20, saying that the Zionists take it for granted that the local population will be cleared out to suit their convenience. So that's yeah. a bit of... Uh, we'll get to Israel later on, I'm sure. Um, on addressing the Peel Commission in 1937, much later on, uh, on why Britain was justified in deciding the fate of Palestine, Churchill displaying his uh, white supremacist ideology, um, <laughs> uh, said that the Aryan, the Aryan stock is bound to triumph. Ooh. Uh, sound Ooh. familiar, Ray? Uh, yeah, a bit. 
A bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. if I said to you that a, that a political leader in the late 1930s, a European right. political leader, <laughs> justified genocide and the mass right. displacement of people based yeah. on his belief that the Aryan stock is bound to triumph. Yeah. Now, who would you have guessed I was talking would about? Would not guess Churchill. Would mm. not. At the same time at the Peel Commission, Churchill said the following... I do not agree that the dog in a manger has the final right to the manger, even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I do not admit that right. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, to put it that Wider. way, has uh-huh. come in and taken their place. Old school, yep. And then somebody yep. said, so why should the Jews have Israel? Well, they were there before. <laughs> uh, hold on a second. You just said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, although I don't want to position him as being an anti-Semite or even anti-Zionism, in 1920 he wrote an article called Zionism versus Bolshevism, which is a fascinating read. Um, Mm -hmm. He kind of says, look, there are three kinds of Jews. Um, There are the Jews that that live in England or anywhere else, and they they behave like British gentlemen, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. They've assimilated, basically, and, you know, I've got nothing against assimilated Jews. Good on you. Um, You have the Zionists who want to, you know, uh, get back their homeland, then they're okay too. But then you've got a third kind of Jew, what he called Mm-mm. the international Jew, and he blames the international Jew for much of the world's problems. Oh, my God. 1920, Ray. Oh, uh, my God. Uh, somebody else was blaming Jews for the world's problems. In <laughs> so, not, Cam, uh, if I said, do you name me a person in the 1920s who blamed the world's problems on the Jewish people? Ooh, let me Ooh, see. Let me go down a list <laughs> of probable people there, right? Uh, no. Let me let me read this yeah. quote. See if you can get. We should play. You know, Hitler or Churchill. Just read quotes <laughs> no, and see if people no. can tell who it was, <laughs> man. This is the quote from the article that I mentioned. This worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstitution of society on the basis of arrested development, great TV show, by the way, of envious malevolence and impossible equality has been steadily growing. It played, as a modern writer, Mrs. Webster has so ably shown, a definitely recognizable part in the tragedy of the French Revolution. It has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. And now at last, this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe and America have gripped the Russian people by the hair of their heads and have become practically the undisputed masters of that enormous empire. Mm. Although in all these countries there are many non-Jews, every whit as bad as the worst of the Jewish revolutionaries, the part played by the latter in proportion to their numbers in the population is astonishing. He also, by the way, in this article, said that he thought the Jews were going to lead to the downfall of Germany. Mm, Only if. And played a large role in World War I. Now, 
uh, hello, um, you know, really? <laughs> now, I can then, already hear the apologists out there yeah. going, well, but he didn't throw them into concentration tramps and he didn't, and, and, and okay, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that is true. But in large part, that invasion of uh, Bolshevik Russia that I mentioned before was mm-hmm. because he didn't like the Jews. He yeah. didn't like the, the the Jews that wanted a revolution. Um, so, you know, definitely maybe not completely anti-Semitic there, but at least half anti-Semitic. <laughs> I don't know how you yeah. classify that. He was well, he was he was he was like, I'll give you an example. He was like someone from Virginia saying right. you know, I don't like the niggers, but uh, you know, Bill Cosby, he's okay. He got. <laughs> I don't. They make they make something he of themselves. Yeah, they make something yeah. of themselves. Um, you know, okay. I, I, don't, I don't mind the niggers that, that, that you know that, that do you know that make like the the Michael Jordan. Yeah, okay, but uh, the rest of them niggers, yeah, uh, the ones that the uh, the you know the 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 the, <laughs> the, the want equality. They want yeah. the, the, you know they don't want to be slaves. They want to end the segregation. They Martin Luther Kings. Uh, don't like them niggers. That's basically Uncle Winston- Joe. Was that you? <laughs> that's that's my Winston Churchill impersonation <laughs> with a redneck American accent for go. some reason. You know, one of my one of my wife's favorite writers is T. S. Eliot, and I don't know why, but occasionally when I when mm. I really feel the need to sleep on the couch, you know, he was a, he was a, a, a flagrant anti-Semitic, uh, and I get the look. I go get my pillow and blanket. I get on the couch, but I'm right. I'm right. So she, she, for some reason, she just loves this man. She loves his work. Excuse me. She loves his story. She loves his writing. And occasionally, just to fuck up my perfect world, I will point that out and pay the consequences. But it well, felt good. At the and moment. we'll get into this more later. But again, I can hear the apologists. It's a very common thing. Yeah, the apologists will say, "Look, that Churchill was just like everyone else of that era." And look, here's my thing on that. A, that's not even true. And I'll, I've got quotes from his contemporaries that were like, fucking Churchill, man. Like, he's crazy. <laughs> and B, it's interesting when people use that as an excuse for people they want to like. You don't hear anyone say, well, Hitler, look, you know. <laughs> it was just, it was a product of his time that people didn't oh, like Jews back then. You, you know, you can't, you can't yeah. judge him based on 21st century morals. Like... He I, was no different to anyone, you know. People use that apologic, apologetics, you know, in a very hypocritical yeah. fashion. They use it to justify one Absolutely. person, but they won't, you know. Because they're humans. We're all humans. Yeah, exactly, the, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, more, more, let's keep going. More Churchill. Yeah. So uh, in 1927, yeah. he went to Rome, mm-hmm. met, met uh, uh, Mussolini. Um, afterwards, afterwards, he wrote, "What a man! I have lost my heart. Fascism has rendered a service to the entire world. If I were Italian, I am sure I would have been with you entirely from the beginning of your victorious struggle against the bestial appetites and passion of Leninism." Mm. Mm. Yeah. Now, now, you made this point before that he could that he you know could see and he had vision and people often say, oh well, you know he saw before anybody else what a bad thing fashion was. No, he fucking didn't. Maybe a little bit before, but you go back to the late twenties. He loved fascism. He thought fascism was the fucking bomb. 
Well, to me, at that point in his life, to me, he reminds me of Reagan. Yeah, you might be a fascist or whatever, but if you're against communism, you are suddenly my man. And so uh, for me, I think it might that's part of the context. Um, when he goes against Hitler, it's because he, he truly reads um, Mein Kampf. He reads the English version of that when it comes out. So for, for Mussolini at this point, to me, it's like, Okay, you're you're against uh, you're against communists. You're my man. I'll, I'll go with you all the way. For Hitler, it was truly based on what he wanted to do if he ever came to power. But I see your point. Little known fact that Churchill actually wrote a song about Mussolini around about oh, this cool. time. Yeah, it's it's quite good. I'm a big fan of it. Had a big intro. That's what she said. <laughs> There's a brand new political movement, I don't know its name That people from bad homes are joining again and again (laughs) I should have worked on this a bit more It's big and it's scary, full of tension and fear They do it over there, but we don't do it here. Fascism! Fascism! We're on the right! Fascism! We've got a good squad and we're coming to town. Bang, bang! Fuck me, I could almost say that Bowie wrote that song about fascism and changed it at the last moment. I knew it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, On the subject of India, um, said the British Secretary of State to India, Winston is not quite sane. (laughs) I don't see much difference between his outlook and Hitler's. Ouch. This is getting back to this point. People say, well, everyone thought that way. No, they didn't, really. They didn't. Um, according to John Charmley, uh, who wrote a book called Churchill and the End of Glory, uh, Churchill certainly believed in racial hierarchies and eugenics. In mm-hmm. his view, white Protestant Christians were at the top. Um, the best, Jerry, the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so good. <laughs> Thank you. Love side though. Oh, that just that's I, I love you on you. Um uh, what's that guy's name? Oh shit. Oh shit. Um, what's his name? Uh oh, yes. Banya. 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 Two dinners. No, one lunch, one dinner. <laughs> you pay. No, you pay. Dutch. Okay. Deal. <laughs> oh my god. It's gold, Jerry. Gold. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) In Churchill's view, the white Protestant Christians were at the top. Just below them are the white Catholics. Um, Indians were higher than Africans. Um, Churchill, and I don't know where the Jews were, but Churchill saw himself and Britain as being the winners in a social Darwinian hierarchy, according to Charmley. Now, uh, people may not know this, but when Mahatma Gandhi launched his campaign of peaceful resistance, Churchill 
said that Gandhi ought to be laying bound hound bound hand and foot at the gates of Delhi and mm. then trampled on by an enormous elephant with the new viceroy seated on its back. Well, first of all, I have to say, one, it could have been a little elephant and you still get, you know, a mission accomplished. And two, as far as your hierarchy, you've got to think the Asians are sitting back and going, yeah, we're laughing at you all. We know we're the best. They certainly were when I was in high school. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. You're saying that racism goes both ways? Uh, Yeah. And uh, I know just one time I dated this Indian girl. She's fucking hot. Anyway, but the point is she she could never introduce me to her family. And she said, uh, well, I can't take you home because you're white. And I wanted to go, yeah, I'm white. I'm like the best. And and obviously it was and my eyes got opened up to racism. Racism is horrible. Horrible. I didn't know about it until that moment. Yeah, it's all about the whores, racism. (laughs) Horrible. Whores aren't racist. They'll fuck anyway. (laughs) No, No, but the point is I I, I actually had racism used on me and it didn't feel very good. Yeah, well, when I saw you, I was like, you stupid fucking American. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck do you... Who who turns out to be charming? Quite charming. Yeah. (laughs) When uh, Gandhi was fasting, Churchill told Cabinet, Gandhi should not be released on the account of a mere threat of fasting. If he dies, we should be rid of a bad man and an enemy of the empire. Mm. Mm. Again, Mm. going back to Charmley, the author of this book, I've got a quote from him. He says, Churchill was very much on the far right of British politics over India. Even Mm -hmm. to most conservatives, let alone liberals and Labour, Churchill's views on India between 1929 and 1939 were quite abhorrent. Churchill was basically the Donald Trump of England in the 20s and 30s. I was going to say he's a Britain with a capital B, but you took it even further. So can you win that? Yeah. With a capital W. Release Roger. Going to get back to Charmley quotes. People sometimes question why on earth did people not listen to Churchill's warnings about Hitler in the late 1930s? To which the short answer is that he'd used exactly the same language about Gandhi in the early 1930s. Mm. Yeah, it's all context. It's all context. See, this is, you know, people have this soundbite view of Churchill that they've picked up yeah. over the years. Oh, wonderful man. Wonderful man. They should have listened to him. Should have listened to him about Hitler. But, you know, his own contemporaries were like, Churchill's fucking crazy, man. Like, yeah. keep him away from the keys. Don't yeah, a lot let of people, Churchill drive, man. Yeah, exactly. They did not want him in power. Um, but it's, it's so true. If you end your career or whatever you want to call it on a high note, all the stuff you did before seems to get, you know, whitewashed. And, and he's a good he's a good uh, case study for that. But but more on that later. Uh, Churchill again said around this time, I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion. Now, people might say, okay, well, he talked a lot of shit and he was obviously a douchebag, but at least he didn't kill them. Well, he kind of no, did. Um, a, bit. a bit. A bit. Yeah. A bit. I mean, sort of indirectly, though, uh, he didn't throw them into concentration camps, although there were concentration camps in South Africa after the Boer War that he was quite a big fan of, but mm-hmm. I didn't want to focus on that. It wasn't under his management. He was just a young guy. Right. He thought they were wonderful, though. Lovely. Love a good concentration camp. Throw the darkies in there. Lovely. Um, so in 1943, so in the middle of World War II, or towards the end of World War II, I guess, a famine broke out in Bengal, which was still mm-hmm. run by the Brits. The famine was um, 
at least in part caused by British policies over right. the previous few years. There'd also been droughts and bad harvests and that kind of thing. But Churchill uh, had ordered a build-up, uh, a stockpile of wheat um, for the feeding of European civilians after they had been liberated. Right. So 170,000 tonnes of Australian wheat mm-hmm. didn't go to India where they were starving. It went into right. storage for Damn. the white people. Damn. Uh, of yeah. Europe because you know you got a choice you can feed the white people or you can feed the darkies I mean really it's not even uh, you know right he didn't even stop and think about it um, three to four million people starved to death in Damn. India um, while British uh, officials other British officials and Indians begged Churchill to direct food supplies to the region they knew what was coming. Churchill yeah. bluntly refused. He wittily replied, if food is scarce, why isn't Gandhi dead yet? Oh, didn't like him. He also said, uh, relief would do no good. Indians breed like rabbits and will outstrip any available food supply. Um, at other times, he said the, the, uh, the, the, the plague was merrily culling the population. Yeah. I saw some photos, by the way. Uh, there are photos of mm. this, uh, you know, the, the, the just, you know, imagine the photos of um, Dachau or Auschwitz. Right. Um, just those corpses, you know, lying yeah. there, but just spread out in streets uh, and in cities. There, are, there is a lot of photo- photographic evidence of, of the famine. Imagine three to four million people. Lying Can't. dead from starvation in cities, yeah. women, Jeez. children, men, animals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is on Churchill. I mean, okay, he was fighting a war, but, uh, you know. And, and when, when, it, when they started to die in their millions, he did end up getting food in there. So it could mm-hmm. be done. He just yeah. chose not to do it. Right. Uh, I'm sure there are levels of complexity in that that we're skimming yeah. over here, but, you know, the point remains. Yeah. Um, Could have started a lot sooner. Yep. Yeah. And British officials were urging him to do it, and he refused. It's not like they didn't know. Oh, well, we didn't know. Yeah, we knew. Yeah. Well, he, one of the things that made India so um, valuable to them was because just of the sheer population, they had taken you know a lot of their men into their armed forces and tried to, and taught them to fight the way uh, the British fight. And so when the British are taking on the Germans and the Italians, mostly the Italians in Africa, it's the Indian troops that are doing a lot of the fighting. So here they are. They've taken this country over. They're taking their natural resources. They tell them what to do. They can't trade with anybody else. They're taking their young men to fight into their wars, and then they do something like this. So I'm sure they chalked it up to a war measure, not sending that food, but still even war measures during times of war have horrible consequences, and it's hard to excuse or ignore that. And and that's the way it should be. Exactly. You can't just whitewash over that and say it doesn't matter or yeah. make excuses for it. Um. Uh, later on in his post-war premiership, uh, the Kenyans uh, fought back against the British. Um, you know, the the British believed and Churchill believed that Kenya's fertile highlands should be the preserve of white settlers. I wanted mm-hmm. to clear out the local blackamoors, as he referred to them. Um, right. He referred to the local Kikuyu tribe as brutish children, 150,000 of them. 
uh, under Churchill's premiership were forced at gunpoint into detention camps. Mm. Um, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, Professor Caroline Elkins, later referred to them as Britain's gulag. So Damn. here we have concentration camps um, run under Sterling, uh, Sterling, Sturhill, Starlil, Churchill's right. leadership. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, when we talk about the moral superiority of mm-hmm. Churchill, just, you know, have a think about that. 150,000 yeah. Kenyans forced at gunpoint into detention camps. And this is getting back to the reason why President Obama, whose grandfather was yeah. one of those Kikuyans, ah. um, didn't really want Churchill's bust staring at him in the White House. I would imagine not. Um, in 1954, when asked about a visit to China, Churchill replied, I hate people with slit eyes and pigtails. <laughs> I don't like the look of them or the smell of them. Damn. And in 1955, mm. he told the cabinet that keep England white was a good slogan. Oh, wow. Okay. Not on a bumper sticker, please. So not just when he was a young man was he, was he a racist douchebag. Even towards the end of his life, he was a completely racist douchebag. So that yeah. is a side of Churchill that you may find shocking. But, right. you know, I also just want to finish up with a few things here. Um, other people who didn't think that way at the time, um, Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin was warned by cabinet colleagues not to appoint Churchill because his views were so antediluvian. Uh, meaning before the flood or backwards. Mm -hmm. Even his doctor, Lord Moran, later wrote in his memoirs that Winston thinks only of the colour of their skin. Um, So, look, there's there's a lot of contemporary accounts of people thinking uh, he was extreme, a racist, crazy, but, you know, good wartime president. I think somebody said, I don't know if I have this quote somewhere, but somebody said uh, earlier on, we never want to see Churchill as Prime Minister unless we're in a war. Yeah. Because he loved yeah. war. He loved he war. He, he loved every, yeah. everything about it. He, yeah. And he reminds me of Napoleon in that sense and Caesar and Alexander. These are guys who loved war. They loved being in command. They loved the details. They loved the strategy and the tactics. Churchill, even though he wasn't a professional military guy, from a very early age, loved the uh, galloping around and killing the barbarous savages. Yeah, he yeah he when he was a little boy, he had his soldiers and he played and uh, you know and uh, he was in the hussar um, hussars. Shit, he was something cavalry. I can't remember which unit, whatever. So he did his time, but yeah, it was just something that um, it obsessed him and he loved it. And here here's the one thing I do like about Churchill. So. Everybody's pretty much out of the war. It's Germany versus Britain. Britain doesn't have the means uh, or the ability to invade the continent proper and fight all the way to Berlin and win. So the, their odds are like just amazing, like, you know, like a thousand to one. And f- for someone like Churchill, oh, my God, if I can pull this is like Caesar and almost like Alexander. If I could pull this off, this will be so fucking awesome. And for someone like him, he didn't despair at those odds. He, he uh, relished those kinds of odds. And so his that type of that part of his personality came out, which is why that part of him is so much is so remembered, and it dominates everything else about his life because that was his million and a one shot, and it worked, and that's just the way he went down in history, and because obviously he um, wrote a lot of history himself. 
Yeah, I got into a lot of trouble on Facebook in the last couple of days when I said that Britain under Churchill played a minor role in defeating Hitler and the Nazis. And, of course, as you'd expect, the British went, what? <laughs> but, you know, he it, it, it often gets portrayed in the West that, well, you know, particularly the Brits, well, Churchill, well, yeah, Churchill, great man, he, he, he stopped Hitler. And the Americans yeah. think they stopped Hitler. We know who really stopped Hitler. Everybody stopped Hitler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I joined that thread a little late, or I joined some thread a little late. Yeah, World War II for everybody, in case if you're like you're 17 years old and you've read a couple of books or whatever, World War II is the story of the USSR after it's modernized under Stalin to some degree with some material help from the Allies, kicking the shit out of Nazi Germany. We did some stuff. Britain did some stuff. Britain kept the war going, kept the resistance going, which helped in North Africa and the Middle East and stuff like that and on the high seas. But basically, if we hadn't come in and did what we did, Stalin would have went all the way to the edge of France, to the Spanish border, because that's just the way it is. And so, I, trust me, I, everybody in my family, except for me, is in the military. All the guys, I would love to tell you a different story. But World War II is Stalin kicking the shit out of Hitler. And we did our part, but we were mostly just trying to grab some territory so Stalin couldn't have it all. That's the cold, hard reality. And Britain should be, you know, commended for resisting and for staying there to help America so we could launch later when we did come in. But it was Stalin's victory more than ours. And Stalin's going to fucking remember that when the war is over. And he's going to have a long list of demands when these guys are meeting and talking about post-war Europe. Yeah, the the level of ignorance that people in Western countries have about the Eastern Front of World War Two uh, never ceases to boggle my mind. I remember when I first learned about it, I was shocked, absolutely yeah. shocked, that I hadn't heard about it in detail before. Let's let's you know play a little game, Ray, with the audience. How many um, how many American soldiers uh, or Americans full up, soldiers and civilians all up uh, died in World War Two? Roughly. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a million, something like that. How, much, how many was it? It was between three and 400,000. Yeah, roughly 400,000, I think. Right. How many British uh, well, before, lost? Before we, before we go on to that, I do want to mention the casualties, obviously, of Pearl Harbor. And if you ever saw the movie 1941, we did lose a Ferris wheel to the Japanese sub uh, when they shot uh, their gun. So we did lose a, f a Ferris wheel off the coast of California in that movie. So there were some American casualties. But besides that, you know, 400,000. And the British, how many did the British lose? I thought it was going to be over a million. I think that was equally around 400,000. About four, 430,000, 450,000. Okay. All right. How All many right. did Russia lose? Um, 17. Yeah, 27 million Russia yeah. lost. Yeah. Let yeah. me just do those numbers again for you, folks. USA lost about 400,000 people all up in World War II. Britain lost about 450,000. Russia lost 27 million. Yes. 40 times the combined of the US and the UK. So, look, don't even begin to think that Churchill stopped Hitler or that... Truman or Roosevelt stopped Hitler. Stalin stopped Hitler. Yeah. No fucking doubt about it. And then people say, well, that's because he was a brutal, cold dictator and just threw people at it. Yeah. That's yeah. how he stopped him. 
But he, he won. threw 27 million people at him. That's yeah. what he had to do to stop him was throw the fucking kitchen sink and the dog and everything <laughs> at right. him because Hitler fucking hated the Russians. He hated the communists and he wanted Russia. He, he wanted to take that landmass. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get into that in more detail. I just, this whole thing, oh, wait, look, we, we got to wrap up. Yeah, um, just, just one ju- more thing. Ju- uh, yeah, what? One more thing. Just when I was a kid watching Hogan's Heroes, I didn't get for the longest time whether they, they would threaten somebody with, if you don't behave or if you don't shape up, you know, talking to the Germans, we're going to send you to the Eastern Front. Yeah. Which I totally did not get as a child. It was never, we're going to send you to Paris. That's your punishment. No, it was always the Eastern Front and the look of fear on their face. I didn't get that until years later when I read, but that's how you know it was the real deal when that's the threat being used by everybody if you screwed up on the German side. And if this is surprising to you, dear listener, the the differential between the the numbers there that I mentioned, and you wonder, well, shit, I didn't know that. Why didn't I know that exactly? This this is (laughs) – that's what you need to ponder between now and our next episode is why – has the, the the Russian contribution to defeating Hitler been more prominent in your education and in the media in There's during a reason. your lifetime? Yeah, exactly. There's a reason. Specific reason. It yeah. has been not hidden from you entirely, but you are the subject, I suspect, I know I was, of, yeah. of Western propaganda my entire life. I grew up in a Commonwealth country, subjected to Commonwealth propaganda. Commonwealth's the greatest. We fucking won the war. Um, and you know, oh yeah, the Russians did a bit too, but let's not worry about them, right? right? Anyway, yeah. I want to end on a positive note. Oh, good. In 1895, during the Cuban War of Independence, Winnie went to Cuba to report right. on the war and developed a taste for Cuban cigars. Good for him. Um, which he smoked for the rest of his life at Chartwell Manor, his country home in Kent. Uh, mm-hmm. Apparently, he stocked between three thousand and. 4,000 cigars. I like him already. In a room adjacent to his study. Now, I admire a man who knows a cigar. Um, Yeah. I probably have 20, 30, 40 cigars in my house at any one time. Mm -hmm. 3,000 to 4,000 cigars. Now, there's a man who knows what he's going to be doing for the next few years. One of his valets, Roy Howells, wrote in his book, Simply Churchill, It took me a little while to get used to the fact that in two days his cigar consumption was the equivalent of my weekly salary. (laughs) Uh, It's good to be a blue blood. It's good to be a blue blood. Churchill typically smoked between eight and ten cigars a day Mm -hmm. and lived to the ripe old age of like 93 or something. Yeah. Now, what am I doing wrong? When I go on vacation to the beach and I smoke three or four a day for a couple of days, after after a couple of days, my voice is gone. So what the hell am I doing wrong? Well, I you're, I, I, you're either smoking bad cigars uh-huh. or you're inhaling the smoke down into your throat too far. Oh, okay. I mean, try not to. You're not, supposed right. to I, you're not supposed to inhale the smoke down to your throat or your lungs. As I, should, I try not to. I should have told you. Okay. I try to never swallow. Yeah. It's a policy I live by. But anyway. Yeah, I found that out a hard way in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> So did, Surprise. The, so did the cleaning staff afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> they had to call up Monica Lewinsky and say, do you, what do you, is it baking soda and vinegar? Which goes on first? 
Good times, good times. (laughs) On one occasion, uh, while Prime Minister during the Second World War, Churchill had to take his first high-altitude airplane flight in an unpressurised cabin. Mm -hmm. Um, According to one of his biographers, when he went to the airfield on the evening before the flight to be fitted for a flight suit and an oxygen mask, he uh, conferred with the flight expert who was going to accompany him on the journey and requested that a special oxygen mask (laughs) be devised so that he could smoke his cigars while airborne. Oh, come on. Come the on. I they, like a good cigar, but come on. They figured it out, and the next day, Churchill was smoking cigars at 15,000 feet through a hole in his yeah. oxygen mask. He's got priorities. He's got the right priorities. How is that not going to blow up? That's what yeah, I want to know. Thinking. A light, oxygen. How did that not, you know. Come down. But anyway. Maybe they didn't know about the explosive effects of flame and oxygen in 1941. <laughs> they didn't know. Maybe, yeah. Uh, on an, crazy. On another occasion, um, mm-hmm. he uh, had to host a luncheon right. in February 1945 to honour uh, King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia. Right. Um, Churchill wrote about this in one of his memoirs. He wrote, a number of... <clears throat> no, I do my Churchill. A number of social problems arose. I had been told that neither smoking nor alcoholic beverages were allowed in the royal presence. As I was the host at the luncheon, I raised the matter at once and said to the interpreter that if it was the religion of his majesty to deprive himself of smoking and alcohol, I must point out that my rule of life prescribed as an absolutely sacred rite, smoking cigars and also the drinking of alcohol before, after, and if need be, during all meals and in the intervals between them. The king graciously accepted the position. Oh, oh my God. Look, I'm going to stay lubed all day long, Your Highness, and you got to live with that. My wife does, my mommy does, the queen does, or whatever. You've got to just roll with the punches. Reminds me of when Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor of California. He wasn't allowed to smoke cigars in the governor's mansion, so he set up a tent, a permanent oh tent God. on the lawn, and right. just said, you want to meet with me? You come into the tent. I, yes, I will sure. be smoking cigars. You don't like that? I you will don't, be right here. If you don't That's like right. cigar smoke, you don't get to have a meeting with the governor. Sorry. <laughs> Tough shit. Tough shit. Yeah. Uh, at the outbreak of the Second World War, um, Churchill was again appointed First Lord of the Admiralty following the resignation of Neville Chamberlain on the 10th of May, 1940. Churchill became Prime Minister. Now, it's worth noting here that he wasn't elected Prime right. Minister. Yeah, no. No, no. no. He no. just was granted the position mm-hmm. uh, by the king. Uh, I'm not sure how the technicalities of that work. You probably know more right. than I do. You want to fill yeah, that was, in there? Well, it was just between him and, um, oh, God, I'm blanking. They, they couldn't decide, and they, were, and, they, and they were putting so much pressure on Churchill. He was just standing there in the room with them, and they just said, look, just tell us. You don't want this. You don't have to do anything else. Just tell it. We'll make you part of the cabinet, but just tell us you don't want this. And he just 
turn his back to them, looked out the window, and just refused to say a damn word. And that was his way of throwing the hat in the ring. And because of because of um, all the speeches that he'd given against Hitlerism, and uh, he was actually, you know, looking forward to this, they could just tell that he got the position. He was able to go to the king, but it was it was very yeah it was not an election. It was very passive. But he was jumping at the bit. He, this is basically his entire life was for this moment. And and that's what we all remember him for, because he did it and he did it well. He broke a lot of rules, a lot of laws, a lot of morals, whatever you want to call it. But he did what he had to do to keep his country in the fight. Yes. Well, <clears throat> his speeches and his radio broadcasts obviously helped inspire mm-hmm. British resistance, particularly during the Battle of Britain, the bombing of right. London. Um, and despite... All of his faults, his mistakes, his racism, his brutality. He is remembered and beloved for defending his homeland from the Nazis and for helping defeat Hitler. Mm-hmm. But as we said before, there's another guy who also defended his homeland from the Nazis and more <laughs> than any of the three, by a massive factor, really did defeat Hitler. Right. But he isn't remembered as fondly. But we are going to get to him in our next episode because we've run out of time. Mm hmm. But before we go. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You you want to say something? No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to play some uh, a song. Oh, did you learn any Russian words for goodbye? I did, but I can't remember what they were. Davi, Dasvidania. Das, oh, Vidania. Yeah, good. Nice, yeah. nice, nice. Very good. Thank you. That's all um, I got. I want- oh, just real, real quick. I'm sorry. I know we're running over, but I just got to say this. When I looked up on YouTube how to say words in Russian, I think I accidentally clicked on Russian brides who all had nice crosses hanging in between their ample breasts with their shirts unbuttoned. I was getting mixed messages, but I was able to focus on one thing on the actually two things on the screen and um, learn a couple of words. So we'll try to bring some more Russian and whatever into the into future shows. With us about the U.S. Blue Blues, so meet the gang, cause the boys are there, the boys to entertain you. B-O-B-O-Y-S, boys to entertain you. Okay, I just wanted to go out with that. Hello? Are you in shock? Oh, sorry, sorry, I had my mute on, I apologize. No, I like that. Uh, oh, to, do you want to say goodbye? Yeah. I thought we just did. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. <laughs>